The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello everybody, it's your martial arts fucking anime inspired wizard Holden McNeely. And it's me, your uh, love letter to the glory days of Tinseltown (laughs) bruiser, Jake. And today we have a special guest from the brighter side. The farter! (laughs) (laughs) Immediately redlining the vocals. Amazing. Um, Wait, Holden, hear him out. I think he's going somewhere good with this. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time that I'm happy, it comes out of my ass. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, Ed, thank you so much. For fucking joining us today. This is cool, man. I'm so uh, thank you for inviting me. I've Hell never yeah. been to the studio before. I'm and and I'm trapped in LA all the time. I know, right? And uh, so it's great to have you here. And uh, yeah, uh, t- and today we're doing part two of Quentin Tarantino. Fuck yes, Django, Django. Man, I love have you Tarantino. ever been alone? <laughs> Another, oh, 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 oh. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that is it. Django. Django. I watched it during my sleep today, and I'm a little more racist. <laughs> yeah, I love how you against you, white people you, <laughs> who, as we learned from the movie, can absorb eighty bullets. <laughs> Something about Caucasian flesh allows them to just absorb the kinetic Man, energy. His blood has gotten so cool. Like starting with Django, it's got like that creamy, like they put yes. shampoo in it or something. Yeah. Like I, it's real thick, you know, like a kill bill it will like spray everywhere and shit. Or uh, Tim Roth and Reservoir Dogs, it's just basically Kool-Aid. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, watch yeah. the blood like slowly get better with the budgets. <laughs> and, and man, and yeah, and his action too. All right, so I, I have to say this right now. Like our, I wasn't planning on doing this, but our TV totally shit the best. So we had to kind of buckle down, especially because, you know, it was for research, right? Mm -hmm. We had to buckle down, get a new TV. I'm finally, like, up to date on that stuff. And getting to test out, test drive this new TV out with every Tarantino movie, starting Mm. with Kill Bill all the way up to the present, has been a fucking blast. And I hadn't sat down and watched that extended Hateful Eight. I haven't done it yet. It's great. And you know what I love about Hateful Eight on Netflix is I think they figured out what Hateful Eight should have been. They because when I hit uh, the extended one, it said season one of Hateful Eight, and I was yeah. like, "What?" And then I looked, and they're broken up into like f- perfect fifty-minute chunks, yeah. like you're watching a TV show, like on HBO. And it was way better watching it that way. Also, it way better watching it in the format that I like to watch westerns, which is it was a Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. it was a beautiful day, the sun's streaming in from the window, I opened up the window, Your dad got a nice was breeze. sitting in the good chair My and you were sitting on the floor. My dad was sitting in the good chair and, and it was something I did all throughout the day. I like watched a chunk of it, then I went and cleaned a little or something, and then I came back, watched a big old chunk of it again, just chilling on the couch like I was a dad watching golf. 
way better watching it that way, I thought, than actually sitting down and like watching it on a movie night. You know I, I mean? love the whole. Ex- I loved everything about it. I, I didn't see the new the four episode thing. I like the movie. I saw it three times in a the theater. I thought it was cool as hell. I, I I you know what it is. I I feel like I would have gotten um, ADHD diagnosis when I was a kid. I have patience problems a little bit and zone out problems. Ed, you know this. You'll yeah. you'll literally be in the middle of talking <laughs> to me and be like, he's not listening anymore. Yeah, no, no, it's just video games all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you can actually capture the moment where his eyes glaze over and you know he's just thinking about Donkey Kong Country. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I gotta get home. <laughs> <laughs> and not knowing exactly what I was walking into the first time, I just think it it just, I, I didn't have the patience for it the first time I saw it. This time, I really soaked in every line of dialogue, every one of those N-words. And <laughs> it was, but, but honestly, like every little nuanced conversation um, and also, it's the kind of movie where you immediately want to watch it again as soon as you finish watching because it. Because now you know who, yeah. knows, yeah. who knows what now when you, they knew it. Exactly. And getting to watch it from that angle as well. But man, I had a blast with that film in the extended version as an episodic television show yeah. situation. I think it'd make a fucking awesome play. Yeah. Oh, my God. I that was thinking about good. that, too. It's well, just two locations. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just you're in the fucking carriage, totally. or you're in the, or you're in the haberdashery. I am sure there is a, a group of college kids rehearsing it right now for their like, <laughs> at least one scene of it for their acting class. Ooh, who would you want to be? They, they surprise everyone. They still think it's death of a salesman, yeah. and they walk in. <laughs> so who would I? Well, I mean, honestly, dude. Um, uh, uh, what's her name? Um, Gooba Gooba Goo. Uh, I forget her character's name. Jennifer uh, Jason Lee. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, she is unbelievable in oh, yeah. that she's, she's the fucking best. she's the best of everybody movie holy shit i wouldn't even try to be her but um uh yeah i'd probably want to be the uh what's his name uh mr blue um his character in Tim that Rob? movie or no uh, michael madsen michael yeah. madsen yeah. Okay. So he's mr names. blonde mr, mr. blue's blonde. eddie bunker mr. Blue. eddie right. bunker has a documentary out that you got to check out that dude had a fucked up life <laughs> that dude had a crazy life uh the joe tyranny has a story about him where he's just like, he's like, yeah, I saw him fight some guy in a parking lot 30 years ago. It was insane. (laughs) So, Ed, we usually start with the gush. Last week, Jake and I really kind of gushed all over the place. It was disgusting Mm -hmm. when it came to our experience with Quentin Tarantino. But we asked you to be on this uh, specific uh, subject episode for a good reason. I mean, I even have memories of, many memories of watching Tarantino films with you. Yeah, man. And I know, you know, you love films, but what is your, you know, but specifically Tarantino, you get very excited. Uh, the dialogue's so much fun. Yeah, oh, God. It's and, just so, yeah. it's just a blast. I love, it's so rare that you go to a movie and you're like, talk more. <laughs> you know, like, and that's one thing that Tarantino, I really loved about him. I mean- Personally, as a human being, I don't know how much I love him, but his art, <laughs> his art is amazing. I mean, I grew his, up on Woody Allen films, so yeah, don't yeah, even yeah. get me started. Exactly. It is so, it is so much fun. It taught me so much about other genres that I needed oh, yeah. to learn about. Hundred percent. You know, it's like I thought I knew about westerns, you know, but like, no, I didn't know about westerns. Yeah. Tarantino's a freaking encyclopedia. So, what? When did do, do you remember when you first discovered Tarantino? I what, saw Pulp Fiction in the theater. Lucky wow. fucking you. Yeah, my parents let me see anything when I was a kid. And then I immediately went and got Reservoir Dogs. So so what was right at, at what the, was that experience like? I mean, I was just like, I need money. You know, yeah. like I was just like, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, this is great. I mean, the gangster's wonderful. I was telling <laughs> I was telling Jake uh, last week that my first attempt at like a screenplay or like scene writing mm-hmm. was definitely us, m- me and my buddy Ben Epps trying to 
uh, just write Reservoir Dogs, essentially. It was just like, we got to get this fucking money and these fucking people are fucking us fucking over you. Fuck. Fuck you. You know what I mean? Hold on. I have to go to the bathroom to do some fucking horse. (laughs) (laughs) I love getting high on that sweet black magic. I remember me and my friends in seventh grade sat down to write Pulp Fiction 2. But like, we're like, it was like came to the realization that everyone's already dead. You know? (laughs) (laughs) So... So any other like I mean I mean I went the prefer I'm obsessed with uh if, whoever doesn't know me I write roast jokes I work with Jeff Ross and the first roast I ever went to my whole life was the roast of Quentin Tarantino the Friar, right. the Friars Club roast of I Quentin Tarantino I forgot about wow. that and yeah he- at the Hilton it's a private roast there's like 1500 tickets Howard Stern was there I met Joe Frazier it was a crazy awesome like Michael eat- Madsen was on the dais what an amazing idiot. Well, he doesn't know how to speak or read <laughs> Samuel Jackson was the roast master he was just smooth as hell the whole that's time. awesome and um I, Louis CK dropped out didn't he no showed it mm. Sarah Silverman killed it Whitney Cummings killed it I bet but uh, the thing that like Uma Thurman was like one of the last people to go. Did he like eat something off her foot or something? They both drank shampoo out of her pumps. Oh, uh, not sh- champagne. Not thank shampoo. God. Thank oh, God. Thank God. Because that would have made it way worse. Well, <laughs> I was, well, dude, well, he's even a I bigger am. freak. Smooth throat. <laughs> <laughs> champagne. Yes. And no, it was great. She that's had like amazing. six inch heels and she took wow. them off. And she's like, I know you've been waiting to do this. And they like linked arms and like and, and, and drank the champagne that's amazing it was the coolest fucking the whole thing was great i was right. in heaven i remember when everything you went to, to be that. like the first roast is like quentin tarantino yeah perfect it was amazing because it, it was and it wasn't televised so i mean that's such a special memory yeah there's no, no there's no like re-watching that. i mean no maybe they, yeah do that, they film yeah yeah that i know of that I mean, was through the friars club that yeah. was like classic friars club yeah show? it was oh. had like a, the dais was like you know only like 10 people actually did sets, but the dais is like 70 people long. So there were like Beach Boys there and Lou Reed and, wow. like, you know, just like hanging out and watching this thing. That's amazing. And Howard Stern was uh, hiding in the rafters because he didn't like to talk to people. Did you get to meet him? Tarantino? Tarantino? Not then, but I actually okay. met him briefly. During that Black Lives Matter march that got him in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I was, and we're definitely going to get to that today. Yeah, but um, I met him during that march. We were filming for our Jeff, cop special. Jeff, right. Jeff, we were roasting cops in Boston. Right. So I was Which like, is fanta- a fantastic special. Yeah, please way. check it out, Jeff Ross Roast Cops. <laughs> uh, but uh, we went and saw, so we were, at, we were at the rally, and this rally was like particularly fucked up. I'm not saying that any Black Lives Rally. Matter rally is better than another one, <laughs> but this one had they flew in all the victims' families, mm, and so it was oh like especially intense. You know, I'm meeting like grandmothers that watched their little daughters get killed in front of them. You right. know, and Tarantino's uh, like flipping out, on fire, calling for people's heads and shit. Right, and we we got we got a short interview with him because while we were marching, and uh, he uh, and he was very uh, very frank. And he, I think I believe he said something to the lines of, "I think that the people will start uprising," and mm. the cops took that very personally. Well, didn't he also? What from what I gathered is again, we were going to talk about it when we got around to that uh, part Sorry of his. No, 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 you're fine. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, didn't he also say, you know, when someone, you know, he essentially, in so many words, calls them a, mur- a murderer. Yeah, I think it, was the thing yeah. they got really mad about. Uh, when I see a murderer, I, I call the murderer a murderer. Yeah, something yeah. to that effect. He didn't specifically say cops are murderers, but he essentially did. Yeah, said it's that. like when you see someone get murdered, they got murdered. Right. You know, and it, it, I, I agree. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, I, 
No, nah, lo- that's really unfair to all the cops that aren't murderers and for some reason think we're talking about them yeah. <laughs> when we say we don't like murderers, which is weird. Man. But it's not fair to them. We could go into a big yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah, cop yeah. thing right now, yeah, but yeah. that's not what this episode Let's is. Let's not do that right I now. Got, oh, no, no, things. no. <laughs> this is a time for criminals, scumbags, lowlives, and... Uh, Angry Jews. I, How are you not one of those comedian actors that got booked to be one of the Inglorious Bastards? Oh, You're telling oh me God. Paul Rust got in there and you didn't? I don't know what happened, man. I would have done anything to be one of those k- stupid KKK members. Oh, God. God, what a dream yeah, job. You do the bags yeah. next time. You want the bags. My holes ain't even. I love it. It's the funniest, it's the funniest scene That's of all That's probably the funniest scene of all this. And speaking of which, before we get into, we pick back up with our our tale of Quentin Tarantino starting with Kill Bill. Uh, what what would you say is your favorite? Uh, I mean, if you had to choose, we actually did a ranking of Tarantino films for our bonus Patreon content. I'm yeah. not going to give it away, but our number one with a bullet was Inglorious Bastards, personally. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, After rewatching them, especially. Pulp Fiction number two, and if you asked me on a different week, I'd say Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I was literally just rewatching it before I came here. I fucking love that movie it's so much. It's perfectly written. It's so wonderful. And honestly, yeah. if you asked me on a different week, but also rewatching Inglorious Bastards, every shot is a painting. Yeah. Every line of dialogue is also pretty perfect. Yeah. I mean, I love every one of his movies. Of course. I'm not saying that one's worse than the other. Death, death you know, Proof like, I'm not huge on, actually. Death that, Pro- it has one of the best ever uh, uh, stunts I've ever seen on camera. So his worst movie, in my opinion, still has the best stunt yeah. I've ever seen in a movie. But still, not not uh, the only one I'm kind of like, I'd, I'll just skip to the end, essentially. Unpopular opinion, uh-huh. my least favorite. Reservoir Dogs. Really? Yeah. God, I love. Well, I, I, mean, I, I, I love nostal- the movie. I yeah, love yeah, yeah, yeah. the movie. You I have know, a nostalgia like, issue with that. I yeah. that I wore that VHS tape out. Oh yeah, I could say every line as they happen <laughs> when I watch it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> and my favorite's got to be either Jackie Brown or Django. Jackie Brown is a movie that I was like kind of lukewarm on the first time I saw it, and now I find it to be one of the best. It's, so it's like good. Weezer's Pinkerton. Everybody yeah. wanted the big follow-up. Yeah. It was it <laughs> yeah. wasn't what people were expecting. Everyone turned against it. Mm-hmm. The creator went a little bit nuts afterwards because of the feedback, <laughs> and then through the lens of time, everyone was like, "Oh, wait, it was actually genius." It's actually, really brilliant. <laughs> um, all right. And if you're telling, and yes. Uh, People in the comments and writing the review on iTunes as we speak, comparing Tarantino to uh, Rivers Cuomo was the whitest analogy a human body could produce. (laughs) And I accept that criticism. I also would like to give a special shout out to Four Rooms. Oh, yeah. We, we, that uh, movie means a lot to me. Really? I really love that movie. I really lo- love that movie, too. You were like, we didn't rank four rooms in our ranking. It's not a full movie. He doesn't he, consider you know, it. It's yeah. like you're not going to throw in Sin City either. Yeah. You know, we so. also ranked it considering because he feels it is one thing. Kill Bill 1 and 2 is one Yeah. Thing. No, no, no. Yeah, of um, course it is. Yeah. And obviously, we did throw in that one episode of ER he directed for whatever reason that was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you put in True Romance and Natural Born Killers? Uh, no. 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 Uh, again, okay. I direct Tarantino directed. Yeah. Okay, cool. Tarantino directed films. Okay, so let's hop in. Kill Bill and Uma Thurman. So on the set of Pulp Fiction, Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino come up with a character called the Bride and built a story around just the single image of this bride com- covered in blood. 
Uma Thurman was also very inspired by Pam Greer in the film Coffee, which was one of Tarantino's big inspirations yeah. for Jackie Brown, which we talked about last week. And uh, Gloria Swinson, who played, uh, who was played by Gina Rollins in the female-led crime thriller Gloria, which I really want to check out now. It looks really cool. So, uh, so he, she said they were two of the only women I've ever seen be truly women while holding a weapon. And rewatching Kill Bill recently, her amazing, like just just her standing there with the uh, just the whole Hattori Hanzo <laughs> stuff yeah. is so fucking good. And like the way that she like you know picks up the the sword and and the way that she treats also that training sequence. Is amazing. She just looks exactly. I think she achieved what she was going for. She looks like that sword was made for her when she holds it. You yeah. know what I mean? You hear of one hundred and ten percent. She put in one hundred and twenty. Yeah, and got and then lost fucking thirty percent in a car accident. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, did you watch that footage? By the I way, I did. I did. I got mixed feelings about it. Um. Yeah. She. She. She did. Uh. It was actually kind of hit all at once. She spoke out about being assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Uh, in the same interview with the New York Times that she also spoke about getting into the serious car accident on the set of Kill Bill. Essentially, um, the way he describes it, it was it was like, you know, he convinced her to get into the car for sure. And, well, and yeah, do the I'm stunt sure it was herself. very intense and very heated and he wanted her to do it and he pressured her to do it. Yeah. I agree with that. But also coming from someone who loves intense art that's how you do it. Yeah. Uh, Tarantino said he did say it was a big regret of his uh, afterwards. He said, watching her fight for the wheel, remembering me hammering about how it was safe and she could do it, emphasizing that it was a straight road, a straight road. The fact that she believed me and I literally watched this little S curve pop up and it spins her like a top. It was heartbreaking beyond one of the biggest regrets of my career. It is one of the biggest regrets of my life for a myriad of reasons, Um, especially because she could have had the stunt girl who got super fucked up but she's the also the amazing stunt woman who Zoe did Bell. Zoe Bell, yeah. yes who and she i love her she's so likable on yeah. screen she's, she's just got a the, quality once upon a time in hollywood yeah and in hateful eight yeah i mean I thought whenever, she was I, fantastic. whenever i see her i love her yeah she's just got you could you could see how she got her way into like from stunt woman into tarantino's like cabal of like of actors he frequently works with because she's just got uh, this warmth uh, on screen, but mm-hmm. she got way fucked up when they did the uh, shotgun in Kill Bill in the trailer and she like flies oh, backwards. Yeah. yeah, she got like broke like a bunch of ribs. Not really. Yeah, yeah. The stunt. Yeah, Zoe. Uh, it's it's one of those weird things that like as a, as someone who watches once you watch enough films when you go like ooh that looks like it hurt that's because it did. <laughs> It's like wrestling. They're fucking throwing themselves over cars and shit. Yeah, it's crazy. Stuntmen are fucked up. Cameramen are fucked up, by the way. Cameramen Uh, break their backs all the time and stuff like that. Um, Tarantino spent a year and a half writing the script uh, in New York City in the year 2000 while hanging out with Uma Thurman and her daughter Maya and referred to Uma Thurman as her as his muse rather uh, it was uh, it's a revenge picture in the traditions of Chinese martial arts and Japanese period cinema with some spaghetti western and Italian horror thrown into the mix for good measure this film to me especially Kill Bill Part 1 I kind of miss this because now I feel like He's a lot more like this, doing these bigger, epic, um, I don't know how to describe this. In Kill Bill, especially part one, the choices he makes stylistically are like so wonderful and wild, and I miss yeah. them. And I think it's because they're inspired by anime. Inspi- I mean, having just breaking out into an animated sequence, period, mm-hmm. having all these weird just like 
editing choices and why, it just everything felt so surreal and over the top and I miss that Tarantino. What's uh, the the name of the the ball, Gogo Ubari or whatever? A mace. But uh, it's like a fancy mace. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, that thing. Oh, my God, it's I like love that thing. Everyone gets, like, cutaways and flashbacks yes. and all this cool it's, stuff. Yeah. Because uh, Tarantino is just playing with this toy box of all the crap media, everything from, like, the six million dollar man. Yeah, to- and we talked about uh, Yakuza Cinema when we did our Yakuza video game episode. Um, oh yeah, and you definitely get Yakuza inspired stuff, especially with the. Uh, I mean the eighty eights, the crazy eighty eights. So ya- Yakuza uh, or Yakuza? Uh, what do you where do you land on that? Yak- Yakuza? I don't I mean, know. They don't- call themselves like the honorable organization in conversation. <laughs> That's what you it? call them if you're talking to one. <laughs> All right, honorable and and. <laughs> Just ignore the giant dragon tattoo on the dude in the suit's back. Um, and, uh, you know, the so there's actually a lot of weird, like, influences going on here where um, he's inspired by, like, the Shaw Brothers and, like, all these old uh, kung fu movies. You know, you got your Pai Mei sequence mm-hmm. uh, where it, even they changed the film stock to have that kind of blown yes. out yeah. over saturated or undersaturated like the film's been run through many times yes. in the grindhouse theater also and jumping to black and white too well that was uh for censorship purposes they oh. couldn't get an r rating <gasps> unless uh they kind of toned it down and in the international release all those a lot of those black and white shots uh i think well, if you're talking about huh. in the sword fight yeah. where it randomly cuts to black there's and white, a couple of them that's yeah. uh that's 100 percent for censorship there's and also in, the flashback scene in the flashback in the i'm not sure that might be stylistic there's no violence in that scene so. well like in the church scene there's well you watch them walk in it's, but you don't like see the the wait, people get gunned down you hear it and it as the camera's like crane shotting yeah. away from the church what they should have done is do black and white when she wakes up in the hospital and feels her stomach and starts crying because <laughs> that really fucked me up yeah that's more emotional <laughs> it's gonna tear you to pieces yeah, yeah how about when the guy is fucking you know raping her yeah uh yeah that's that's, that's you know that, bu- that, you mean the, buck who likes to fuck yeah buck who likes to fuck the owner of the pussy wagon yes yeah. yes <laughs> you know for this serious crime yeah the cop <laughs> the guy who played a cop in jackie brown by the way could you imagine i, I all i could think about rewatching it was just like what kind of a nurse, male nurse, just openly drives a car, pulls into the garage that just says pussy wagon in giant letters? Someone who knows they're going to die young. And a nurse that has the words, the word fuck written on their hand is even more so. Like, who would hire somebody? Listen, the healthcare industry in America needs reform. No one's here to dispute that. Well, it's um, a B movie, too. Yes, know? totally. Like, I mean, yeah. It's, and it can, well, that's one of the parts where it like, goes into horror. Yeah. This is, I mean, it's literally part of Tarantino. It's, first of all, it's very weird how Tarantino's mind works. Uh, but in a really long interview with, like, Harry Knowles. Remember that guy? Yeah. Remember? The guy who looks the like. big, fat, uh, rotten tomato. Or what was his thing? The, he's the guy that looks like uh, if every member of Murder Fist got rolled into a Katamari. What's the, what's the website? Is Ain't it? Yeah, it was cool. Ain't cool News. Ain't it Cool News. And, like, it codified the idea of uh, Quentin Tarantino's realer than real universe where stuff like Pulp Fiction and uh, Death Proof takes place in. Mm-hmm. And then there's the movie movie universe yeah. where Kill Bill takes place in. And uh, like, so it's the idea is that in Kill Bill, this is like what exploitation hyper violent movies would look like in the already violent world uh-huh. of Pulp Fiction. is Because uh-huh. in theory, uh, you know, it's people can very easily draw a line between the divas 
the deadly viper assassination squad yeah. and the Fox Force 5 that Mia yes, was doing. Yes, and that's what Lexi said when she was watching. She was like, this is like Fox Force 5. Yeah, yeah. it like, absolutely yeah, is. Well, totally. well that's why, def- it's definitely why they were talking about the idea of this film while filming Pulp Fiction. Right. Also, I'd like to give a special shout out to uh, Michael Parks. You guys know who I'm talking about? The guy who plays the sheriff. He plays oh, the yeah. same oh. character in like five different movies. Yeah, he's he plays, great. Like, McGraw or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He plays yeah, like this tall drink, a cocksucker ain't dead. <laughs> and then yeah, but he's he plays the sheriff. He plays the the sheriff in that from Dusk Till Dawn. It's the same character. So this lives in the same world and it's in the same town as from as the beginning of From Dusk Till Dawn. Right. Where the because we see from so From Dusk Till Dawn took place. After Kill Bill, when right. she gets shot in the church, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the guy, because his character dies there, which I find very cool. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, Sheriff McGraw blows up the entire idea that there's any coherence to what he said in that interview. <laughs> but uh, if you notice in Kill Bill, like, uh, okay, so in Kill Bill, there's a ton of shots where like uh, the bride goes onto an airplane to Japan, and it's clearly fake. It's so blatantly a fake miniature set. Mm-hmm. And not only that, there's designated samurai sword like caddies built into the seats. Right. Where like it's just you are clear. This is clearly in a heightened universe on top of a heightened universe. Right. Right. That uh, also shout outs to the five six seven eights, which oh, is yeah. like the five, just such a fucking awesome band. They had a full career. Yeah. Hell yeah, they did. Uh, Tarantino had a was uh, he heard the woohoo woohoo uh, just by chance while like shopping in Tokyo huh. and was like. Uh, and like literally harangued the store clerk to give them, to give him the shop's copy of the disc. That's amazing because <laughs> he knew he'd forget about it if he left. That's great. I That's mean, it's perfect. Awesome. Also, to go back to, I, I, I it's, this is probably the best time to address this. Um, uh, when it comes to. Because man, it's hard to watch that Weinstein logo every time at the yeah. beginning and, of. Uh, I mean, Weinstein. Made Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, and and you you can't you know. Yeah, Weinstein you, invested in all these counter yeah. culture guys, and it paid off huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so uh, Uma Thurman talks about it in her interview. Same interview she talked about that car crash, and this is what Tarantino had to say about the whole matter. I've already dealt with my complacency in chalking it up to this harmless form of. For some reason, that now feels wrong. Back in 1999, it was easier to chalk up what he was doing to his, this mid-60s, madman, bewitched era of an executive chasing the secretary around the desk. Now it's like, as if that was ever okay. One of the things that has happened in this whole thing is there is a lot of staring in the mirror and thinking about, how did you think about things during that time? What did you do in that time? What was your feeling about things at that time? So it looks like he's at least, you know, he did disown uh, uh, step away from, you know, the company and all that kind of stuff. And he's obviously, you know, addressing it at least somewhat. But I'll let his words speak for itself on that matter. But uh, we always when we refer to Weinstein in episodes because he comes up from time to time. It's always local or or, uh, known complete piece of shit. Harvey Weinstein. And it's just such a shame that uh, these films have to be, like, tarnished with that gross logo. I wish they'd just rip it out of the fucking... There was one confrontation where, like, because Tarantino was uh, involved with Mira Sorvino at, like, the height of her, like, Mighty Aphrodite shit. And she told fucking Tarantino about uh, a Weinstein Mm -hmm. confrontation. And so when it became that personal, Tarantino did get up in his face and was like, don't do this. Right. But he still didn't like. Yeah, kept working with him. Yeah, yeah, he kept working with him, and it, you know, it's just it's so un, it's so 
shitty. But anyway, I mean, honestly, my- I mean, it's your girlfriend. Like that yeah. was just like they were like engaged at the yeah, time, weren't yeah. they? They yeah. were. That was pretty. And she won an Oscar. Yeah. And then we never heard from her again. Right. Huh. Um. I think this is now a good time to talk about Robert Richardson because I've been thinking as I was rewatching these films, especially the later films, like God damn, these movies look good. They look so good. And Robert Richardson is his uh, frequent collaborator, uh, cinematographer. He oh. started working with him in Kill Bill. Uh, Quentin Tarantino would use the same cinematographer for everything except Death Proof. Death Proof, he did his own cinematography, so it was such a kind of like B movie rush job. I think he he also working a lot of uh, with Robert Rodriguez's guys too. Ah, gotcha. Um, So Robert Richardson got his BFA in film and animation and video at the Rhode Island School of Design, then an MFA from the um, AFI Conservatory. That's American Film Institute, right? Conservatory. Mm -hmm. He started out as a camera op and second unit photographer on films, most notably A Nightmare on Elm Street back in 1983. And he was doing cinematography for TV documentaries during that time. And it was doing one of those called The Frontline El Salvador, where he met Oliver Stone, who hired him to shoot his first film, Salvador, in 1986. Great movie, by the way. Really? If you guys haven't seen it. What's you it about? Ju- it's a journalism movie. Cool. James Woods is in it. Don't hold it against the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stone's next film that same year with Robert Richardson is going to get him an Oscar nomination because that movie was Platoon. He ends up winning Best Cinematography for JFK, which is incredibly, incredibly shot. Beautifully shot. Uh, And in 1995, he became a frequent collaborator with Scorsese as well, starting with Casino. Yeah, so this is like the dude. I didn't realize. I love learning about these people. There's always these people like, oh, my God, I've been watching this guy's work. Forever. Forever, and had no idea. So this is what uh, Robert Richardson had to say about being on set with Quentin Tarantino. I love working with Quentin because he and his actors work very closely together in rehearsal and on the day. Quentin sets the mood. Some directors that I have worked with retreat to a monitor and watch the performances from the video village. But with Quentin, there is no video village. There is one monitor on the camera that he and the camera assistant will use. But essentially, Quentin watches the actors from directly beside the camera. His attention to performance without video is what separates him from many others. No playback capabilities on his set. A little fact for you know who invented Video Village? Who? Jerry Lewis. Really? Jerry Lewis. He was directing a movie, and he was furious. He couldn't watch the scene right then. Huh. So someone had to invent it for him. You know, I have to say, though, I, having been on a, only just a few sets, like doing the characters with Netflix, and mm-hmm. and even us, we were, we were sort of with the director in the Video Village space, and I would love a situation where the director was right there paying it, you know, really – Right up, right up with me. Holden, my buddy, friend, lover. Uh, listen up. Can you uh, <laughs> just do it good this time? <laughs> I think um, I said that to Holden once. He got really mad. At me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and also I keep hearing, I have some other quotes coming with this stuff, but I keep hearing time and time again, like, he, he sets the st- tone. He's mm-hmm. super energetic. It's like, it's almost like, yeah. it's, it's it's just this place where everybody there wants to be there and he's putting all of his energy into it and he's right up there with you and he's like giving you everything and you're giving back everything and it just sounds like a dream to make a movie this way. Yeah, yeah. it feels like the actors are like, I don't know how to describe Like they went to a theme park that was as good as the commercials were. <laughs> They're like, I, I couldn't wait to work with famous 
loud, weird man, Quentin Tarantino. And sure enough, there he was moving and making all those noises. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So his next movie I've already talked about a little bit is going to be Death Proof, which uh, accompanied a longtime collaborator, Robert Rodriguez's film Planet Terror, which I loved. Uh, By by the way, we saw Grindhouse together, I think. Yeah, and Uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yes, and Inglorious Bastards. Are those the only two? I'd, I'd, I think uh, so. uh, yeah, I think that we saw at least in the theater. I know we watched like Kill Bill on the couch or whatever, like yeah. well, uh, at home, so but the, uh, in the in an apartment rather. The only reason why Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez are friends is because they both had their big breakout movies at the same time, and they were both kind of violent. Yeah. Uh, for Tarantino, it was Reservoir Dogs, and for Rodriguez, it was El Mariachi. Yeah, and so they just ended up on panels. Just oh, every time there was a film festival, they'd be like. Well, time to get the violent freaks together. So, <laughs> what's wrong with your brains? <laughs> and, like, just having to answer the same questions and being stuck on the same circuit. Like, they were the only guys who had anything in common. And, like, that friendship was forged mm. on the road. Yeah, that's so cool, man. It was it happened at Cannes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's, it's, it's amazing. And then he put Tarantino in Desperado. Which was a, a fun little role. Right. I, I forgot about that. Oh, I, that was like my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, and he told that horrible, horrible joke. Horrible joke. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then they did From Dust Till Dawn together. Which yes. Was a lo- which is, I mean, unbelievable. Which movie. I believe we talked about that last week, right? A little yeah, bit. A little um, bit. Uh, oh, a little tip for anyone. If you're ever talking to someone and they don't know anything about From Dust Till Dawn, Make them watch it and yeah. don't tell them there's vampires. <laughs> it is the funnest thing It's to the do. best. Uh, so Quentin Tarantino does agree with me about this movie being his worst film. He said, Death Proof has got to be the worst movie I ever made, or I ever make. Uh, and for a left-handed movie, that wasn't so bad, all right? So if that's the worst I ever get, I'm good. But I do think one of those out-of-touch, old, limp, flaccid dick movies costs you three good movies as far as your rating is confirmed. Concerned. We'll talk about his obsession with filmography, by the way. He's incredibly, uh, he's very, very intent on leaving the world with this very specific filmography, uh, which would make this next film his last film, apparently. I don't believe it, but uh, we'll see. But still, I love that he thinks that. First of all, I love that he calls it a flaccid dick movie, but also that he, he that it's as good as three movies. It's just great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he he made he did a very genre specific movie yeah. that's based on a bad genre, and yeah. he nailed it. Yeah, you know, so you can look at it one way. You can be like, oh well, you know, he made a bad movie. It's like, no, he actually made a perfect movie. And it was just he was imitating bad movies. Right. <laughs> Supposedly, he got the idea from uh, working on uh, Pulp Fiction, where one of the stuntmen was talking about all the various ways that you could make a card, quote unquote, death proof. Mm. And so the yes. idea that there's this car that you can get other people in accidents in and walk away fine was like what sparked his imagination. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, I really love Grindhouse as an entity, as as an afternoon, all the fake trailers. Yeah. The way that... I, I do too. God, those trailers are fantastic. Um, the way that they cut, like anytime there was something that was like too grody for the R rating, they just did a quick cutaway. Uh-huh. Because that's literally what happened in old Grindhouse cinemas. Yes. Is that the projectionists were horny freaks. And if there was like a sex scene or a really gruesome like uh, murder, mm-hmm. they would physically just cut it paste the movie back, tape the movie back together and just keep it for their quote unquote collection. Ah. Oh, so when, so whenever you see that trope of like the, like, well, honey, it looks like we're going to have to get down to some sexy. 
oh my god that was great Greg like it's, <laughs> that's because some horny projectionist stole the scene it's not like a weird censorship yeah. right right and the internet's really saved us in- <laughs> <laughs> uh, also uh, yeah do you remember by the way like Mr. Skin and stuff like that dedicated to just that just the four seconds of footage so weird man Michael Parks plays the car- the sheriff in Death Proof oh yeah totally he's totally. in that too um, also, again, to highlight Zoe Bell, uh, he started working with her on Kill Bill 1 and 2. He, she did stunts in Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Also, this uh, Death Proof was her first on-screen acting gig. She was, like, surprised to see her name on the poster. She thought he was just offering her, like, a small bit part in his movie and then came to realize, like, oh, whoa, I'm actually, like, stepping into a new echelon in, in uh, my career. And I think, you know, for as much as I do feel that this movie, which would be any other director's best movie, uh, uh, is his worst. I think she's fantastic in it, and that stunt is unbelievable. Uh, really, the beginning and the end of the movie, I think, are ph- phenomenal. Yeah. I just think you could cut at least 30 minutes out of just the, just to me, just kind of indulgent conversations that happen he between the two different groups. to show you how good he was at picking songs on a jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a big part. I think to, I, now I'm getting confused between, but he I, maybe I have a quote later about it. But yeah, music, you know, pl- obviously plays a huge part in his movies, but it also plays a huge part in his writing process. He, he, really? Yeah, he listens to the music that inspires the movies he's writing, and he'll when he takes breaks, he'll just move around kind of to the music, walk up, just pace around, just listen to these songs. And that's what really gets him created. The creative juices running. That's great, man. I love that. He is a true artist. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's an absolute auteur. Uh, Here's a quote from Tarantino about aesthetic. It's funny because to me, most cinema schools don't teach you that much aesthetically. You need to come to it with your own aesthetic. Part of becoming an artist is discovering your aesthetic. They might teach you how to sync soundtrack with picture, and they might teach you a few editing tricks, but part of becoming an artist is discovering your aesthetic. I think that as a comedian, like I didn't do stand-up for very long, but literally the first thing you need to do as a comic is find your voice. Everybody will tell you that. Find your voice on stage. That's what you spend the first one, two, three years doing. And it's great because if you do find your voice at age 21 and find success then when you reach age 31 you're fucked <laughs> uh, for the record this is how uh, grindhouse did in the theaters uh it's opening weekend it made only 11.6 million dollars uh which at that point both directors movies were opening at 20 million dollars each mm. and in the foreign market it made only four hundred thousand dollars uh, wow. The combined cost of both movies, $67 million. Hmm. Uh, it Woo. did not hold up uh, against, uh, you know, so what was Grindhouse? It was like a funny action horror thing. Yeah. But very over the top, though. Like, yeah. if you have a, a weak stomach for that sort of thing, you're you're not going to last they very really long. They really should have made it for less money. Yeah. That's true Grindhouse. Yeah, totally. But uh, in the theaters at that point was stuff like 300, which was super serious like super like almost right. n- non-ironic just like manly men cool guy stuff right and blades of glory and dodgeball which was pure silly so like the combination of retro sarcastic schlock just was not what people were looking for I, I, being one of the audience it was made for it was made for a very like specific <laughs> small audience like we i mean i'm those trailers thanksgiving I, into it. I, I just it. imagine a theater a, a theater filled with like holden Tall Holden, Black Holden, <laughs> Girl Holden, and then like twelve different ads as yeah. well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's kill some Nazis, shall yeah. we? Yeah. 
Quentin Tarantino once said, I like dealing in genres. There are westerns, musicals, swashbucklers, and all kinds of things like that. The World War II film is another genre that I've always really liked. Not only that, but I always liked the subgenre aspect of the war movie. There's the big battle film or the bunch of guys on a mission movie. So the thing that sits me down and gets me to do it is the fact that I like the genre. I think to myself, let me try a movie in that genre that'd be cool. That's what sits me down to do it. Then once I sit down and do it, I start dealing with the war and dealing with the implications of it and all that follows after that. But the thing that just sits me down is the thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to make a war movie? And he spent over a decade writing this script, and this he script was, wor- was way different originally. Yeah. He was talking about Inglorious Bastards, specifically my World War II movie, Inglorious Bastards, before he wrote Kill Bill. Forever, yeah. Yeah. forever yeah. he was talking about this movie. I remember waiting for it, just like just so anxious because I love Dirty Dozen, I love uh, Where Guns Eagles and Dare, all yeah. that shit, all that stuff. Great Escape. You know, I love all those movies, and so I was so ready for this. And he views this script his masterpiece and his Dirty Dozen. Uh, and, uh, he, he, yeah, he ended up taking a break, uh, from it for Kill Bill, returned it back to it and trimmed it way down. It was three stories in one. They cut out the whole, there's this whole other part that was this, um, troop of black soldiers that go on a tear through uh, Europe, just fucking shit up in a a revenge. Yeah. Yeah. That's now it makes sense because I know he had this old cast where yeah. at first when he was going to do it, and I remember Eddie Murphy being part of it. It was going to be it was going to be this like crazy Adam Sandler is the Bear Jew. By the way, I ha- I, re- I I actually really liked Eli Roth as the Bear Jew, but I really want to see been amazing. the yeah. version of Inglorious Bastards that is. Adam Sandler as the Bear Jew. That would have been fucking amazing. Yeah. It's also such a shame because funny people kind of miss the mark, and that's what he didn't <laughs> yeah, instead. make it for. And I'm just like, I get why you chose funny people because you know what I mean. It's that on its face, that sounds like a worthy project to make to to potentially miss. But man, oh, it would have been so good. Would have been so good. Eli Roth did great. I, I honestly think he did amazing in that in that movie. Um, and just just like the the fucking. He's got crazy eyes, Mm -hmm. and the look in his face when he's just literally ripping Hitler's face to shreds. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Spoiler. The ultimate spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) My jaw hit the fucking floor Uh, with the, like, just, I broke into a million pieces, because that was the one thing you're not supposed to do. Like, it's, because, let's, let's be honest, this doesn't take place in our World War II. It takes place... Yeah. Someone put... So, if you're a real fucking nerd about it, you can be like, in the realer than real universe, because this is this is why Pulp Fiction was so violent, because we're in a more violent universe sparked by the death of Hitler. No, yeah. fuck that. Um, <laughs> but it's taking place in movie World War II land. It's taking place in Great Escape World, where the Nazis are like comical supervillains, and everyone is brave and like... All this sh- and Hitler is this cartoonish guy, and all the British people are cartoonish people, yeah. and everyone's like just you know, Hugo Stieglitz is just running around like this He's is a movie. The <laughs> and the one thing, even while it was happening, well, actually, no, the one thing that did happen in a couple of World War II movies is they did once in a while kill Hitler. Yeah, yeah. because he was still there. He was still it was it was funny. <laughs> it was funny to kill Hitler in these movies. Feels good too. 
It feels amazing. <laughs> Eli, I think Eli Roth called it Jewish pornography when he first read the script. I mean, it's, it kind of is. It he gave us is. the ending we all wanted, and I really appreciate that. To be honest with you, I remember when we went and saw it, Holden. We were in Wisconsin yes. shooting shooting some murder fist shooting videos, murder fist sketches, and all of murder fist and a couple of our filmmakers, Adam Wirtz and his wife and Carl. We're all there together, and we took over, and it was a sold-out Wisconsin movie theater, and that scene was like dead silence by the entire theater, <laughs> except for all of us just howling with laughter. Yeah. With like the ten of us just going nuts. And I remember when that when that movie theater explodes, I believe the whole even the whole audience couldn't help but go, yeah! <laughs> that was so much fun. I will say that actually kind of rocked me a little bit with the violence like that actually tested my like violence limits a little bit like even though it was hitler which i you know i'm very happy he got his due in this film uh but even that like face ripping apartment i was just like whoa that's yowza (laughs) so tarantino in an interview uh talks about how he would watch where eagles dare which is like uh, richard burton and clint eastwood put on like nazi uniforms and try and infiltrate this uh you know mountaintop uh, stronghold yeah. and it's a classic it's a classic and he expresses frustration with how the scene where they begin to infiltrate they just put on the suits and they enter this you know uh, beer hall full of fucking Nazi generals and it's just implied through the filmmaking that even though they're speaking English and the Germans are speaking with German accented English that both of these guys are speaking perfect German And that the entire, like, will they fit? Like, all that tension is just immediately done away with. Mm. Yeah. And so he really wants to stress the importance of language and and film. The importance of language and film. Yes. Communication. Yes. The way we communicate to each other and how film is an important version of that. And so that's why there's less than a third of the movie is in spoken English. It's crazy. That first scene in the house with the the farmer. Oh, yeah. uh, They speak French, German, and English all in that one scene. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. That's insane to write. Uh, yeah, it's it was also an issue because uh, so it was essential for the film that a lot of multilingual actors were cast, mm-hmm. and uh, they were having trouble because T- Quentin Tarantino didn't really write in the native languages that they were. He basically wrote a Quentin Tarantino a line of Quentin Tarantino dialogue and then just translated it into that language. So none of like the the expressions or turn of phrase or and you know. No, like, self-respecting German or French person would be like, it is like, uh, it is like a hot titty on a cat on a roof. Or, <laughs> yeah. is, you, know, you know what I mean? There was, like, a language barrier, but for some reason... <laughs> I want Now I want to see your Tarantino movie. Shut up. <laughs> uh, it was Christoph Waltz, who was, like, way late in the game. Mm-hmm. He's this weird, you know, he has a weird life. He has uh, Jewish children from a previous marriage, like... One of his his son is like a rabbinical student. He was married to like a psychotherapist from Manhattan. Okay, um, that makes sense for him. <laughs> <laughs> and for, he just like nailed the weirdness of Tarantino while still speaking fluent like Italian and German huh. and French. Man. Arrivederci. Okay, okay, so okay. So that's so it. That's funny. why this is the best movie. <laughs> Hitler. Hitler is great. Hitler, good. Kill Hitler, great thing. Bear Jew, hilarious. Uh, Shoshana, the the film, everything great. The showdowns. <laughs> yeah. There's the yes. movie is built around these three showdowns. Yes. The first one in the in the farmhouse. Shout out to Christoph Waltz. Uh, Tarantino referred to him as one of the best actors I've ever worked with. Nobody does my dialogue better than he and Sam Jackson do. They just sing it. 
which yeah. I completely agree with. Like, holy shit, he's so good in this movie. Showdown, farmhouse, tense, and it's only in the final second that, like, Christoph Waltz, like, plays his hand and everyone dies. And the cat and mouse, the poking, every line of dialogue dripping with subtext. Yeah. Where everyone's trying to, like, gauge who, how much the other person knows. Then we get to the other showdown in the bar. Tries to glass him. Fucking mm-hmm. insane. Insane. Great, Great subtext. Yeah. Great conversation. Unbelievable scene. Unbelievable. That whole King Kong moment is so fucked up. Yeah. The King Kong thing, the fu- the fact that they're there to celebrate a guy who's a dad, just some fucking guy. Yeah, yeah, a yeah, female, yeah. A female German soldier who is so terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> She's like headlocking the guy. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, this movie's close to three hours. We, we're following all these characters. The the fucking Wild West rogue Apache, uh, uh, you know, Inglorious Bastards, led by Aldo Rain, uh, Hans Landa, the fucking... Grand Inquisitor of the German army, and they're finally gonna face to face. And this whole movie has been about these confrontations and subterfuge and lying and like undercutting things. And here are these two monsters of characters about to confront each other. And within the first second, Brad Pitt looking dead into the camera, just Bongiorno. <laughs> just boom, poof, gone. All the tension just blown away like a mound of cocaine in a sneeze. Fucking insanity. It's I so died. Good. I died in that moment, and, P- and I knew this was my favorite movie ever. And P.S., and P.S., by the way, uh, upon rewatching Inglorious Bastards, Brad Pitt, every line he utters in that movie is unique, memorable. Uh, said in a way you never would think to say it. It's just everything he he does in that film. He it's so funny because he's he gets this uh uh you know people think of this beautiful leading man type, but he is one of the best character actors in the, like especially in, in Glorious Bastards. I think he proves that fact. Yeah. He is fucking amazing. Like as the uh uh as the uh what's his name Apache uh, Aldo, the Apache um man Easter eggs. For mm-hmm. uh, for Tarantino movies, right here, the Italian filmmaker who they lie about being is oh, the yeah. one that DiCaprio does movies for in Once Upon oh, a yeah. Time in Hollywood. Oh, Margarita, it's it's, yeah, yeah, Margarita, yeah, it's the same. It's I the love same that guy. he has these running threads in his movies, like the fake products. Of course, there's Red Apple cigarettes, Jackrabbit Slims, yeah. the uh, restaurant Tinku brand beer is in a bunch of stuff, and Teriyaki Donut. <laughs> also, uh, in Hateful Eight, I love how they still have Red Apple and mention. Yeah, at one yeah. point, it's just uh, rolling. It's like yeah, it's rolling tobacco. Rolling tobacco and a and a. Pat what was the dog pouch. food in, in Once Upon a Time oh, in Hollywood? Fuck. Not to not to go to yeah. uh, out of order. Oh, we'll got, get back to it. We'll yeah, yeah, we'll it. get back. It to was it. raccoon flavor. That's all. I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rat flavor. That <laughs> um, was another one. It was so funny. All right, let's now let's we've killed some Nazis. Let's kill some slavers. Uh, his follow up is yet another spin on the spaghetti western with Django Unchained. He'd always wanted to do a spaghetti western as they are, and as he said, really brutal and operatic with a surreal quality to the violence, which I think definitely uh, you could describe his movies as. He wanted. I mean, the original Django is fucking amazing. Yeah, the, the Django directed by, oh, fuck, Sergio Corbucci. Um, he was actually writing a book about Sergio Corbucci, um, and he had this say, When I came up with a way to tell the story, I was writing about how his movies have the, this evil Wild West, a horrible Wild West. It was surreal. It dealt a lot with fascism. So I'm writing this whole piece on this, and I'm thinking, I don't really know if Sergio was thinking this while he was doing this, but I know I'm thinking it now, and I can do it. 
so yeah, he, he wanted to do movies that deal with America's horrible past with slavery. Um, this is actually a quote from him and stuff, but do them like spaghetti westerns, not like big issue movies. I want to do them like they're genre films, but they deal with everything that America has never dealt with because it's ashamed of it. And other countries don't really deal with because they don't feel they have the right to, which is kind of funny because he was just coming off of Inglorious Bastards. Um, I will say, uh, you know, he definitely got a lot of backlash, uh, specifically like um, Spike Lee, like fucking hates him since really Jackie Brown, I think, with his use of the N word. Uh, but Quentin Tarantino had this to say about uh, defending his uh, using um, this topic as a, uh, you know, main theme, you know, main uh Center point for a genre film. I felt no obligation to bow to any 21st century political correctness. What I did feel an obligation to do was take the 21st century viewers and physically transport them back to the antebellum South in 1858 in Mississippi and have them look at America for what it was back then. And I wanted it to be shocking. So, it was. It and was. That's a, it, that's, it was terrifying place. Yeah. And it's not like those people were saying the N word all the time. Those were horrible. They were not portrayed as good people. Yeah. They were, they were, you did that word struck hard for a reason, you know, and it made you upset and it made you hate them more and it did its job. I don't know. I mean, what, I mean, what, it's not like the, the slavers were heroes using the N word. Right, right. Uh, he said, America has been pretty slippery in the way that it has avoided looking slavery in the eye. I believe that's a problem. We should be talking about it to get past it and to get over it. Not only that, frankly, this is an American story that needs to be told. When you think of slavery existing in this country for 245 years, in slave narratives, there were all types of tales and drama and heroism and pain and love that happened during that time. That's rich material for drama. Everyone complains that there are no news stories left to tell. Not true. There are a whole bunch of them, and they're all American with a Capital A. I mean, I he's a fucking creative guy. He can tell whatever story he wants. I'm not the fucking story police. <laughs> if he wanted okay, but if he wanted to be the brave hero who raises these issues, the like the the fucking right hand not the right the the higher path, the fucking Jedi light side way to do it is to put up your fucking millions of dollars and like get an actual black writer and director to tell that story. Maybe yeah. then you get to be the fucking hero guy. I mean, that's the devil's uh, advocate yeah. argument against. So like that. when people yeah. roll their eyes, when he goes on that tangent, like there's way, there's way more in this world for me to get like, to be actively mad at than the fact that Quentin Tarantino thinks he's a like savior for like telling the truth. <laughs> but like, if he really wanted that, if he really, really wanted to be that guy, there was a higher path to take. That's think, it. That's yeah. my only side. Oh, no, please. That's why you're here, Jim. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 never, I never looked at it from that way, but uh, at the same time. But, but, but we're playing the fucking woke Olympics at that point. So, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, you know. I'm... Uh, one notable moment in the film, by the way, is when Leonardo DiCaprio, classically as the evil Calvin Candy, slammed his hand down on a dinner table and accidentally hit his glass, breaking it and giving himself a huge gash on his hand, which bled through the rest of the scene, which he kept going and did it dead on. And I will say, having known somebody uh, or knowing someone who has worked with Leonardo DiCaprio uh, with Henry, uh, Henry himself has told me uh, when he was on set with DiCaprio, he'd never seen someone with such a work ethic. Of course, that was on Wolf of Wall Street, which Henry's in. He yeah. ne- he literally has said he, that, that Leonardo DiCaprio has a work ethic on uh, unparalleled to anyone else he's ever worked with. Well, he was just he gives it a hundred percent every single time. He's he's relentless. He'll work for fucking hours on end just every time, giving it giving it all of it. Uh, and just said he was like an amazing actor to watch on a set. In an interview with Vanity Fair, Samuel L. Jackson, who plays Stephen, the house. Uh, 
the butler guy, uh, <laughs> <laughs> talks about how uh, at an early table read, which had uh, DiCaprio, Tarantino, and Christoph Waltz as the only white people in the room while it was happening, uh, DiCaprio had some trepidation about what was on the page. Uh, yeah. He said stuff like, do I have to say it this many times? And do I have to say it? <laughs> Like this. And Samuel L. Jackson uh, telling the story says, I said, yeah, you do. And DiCaprio would say, well, is there a way? And I'd say, no, you can't. <laughs> because this is how it is. This is the reality of how it's going to go. Yeah. yeah. So once he realized I, I you're either all in that. or all out, he went home. And the next day, he was all in. He got his <laughs> professional pants on and showed up in them. That's Man. awesome. That movie's so fucking it's, intense. You I were mean, watching it earlier today. Ripping uh, the dude up by, with dogs. Yeah, that's fucking. That's that was a dummy made from uh, stage blood and cotton ropes. Really, the, uh, the hot box is really what got me. Really? That whole, oh, it's that would be my worst nightmare. It's that. It's I it's, think it's that claustrophobic by dogs is <laughs> I, I, worse for me. Oh my god! <laughs> but it's like that, and the coffin stuff in Kill Bill is like kind of hard for me to watch. And I'm not a big claustrophobia guy but there it, when it when it comes to not being able to move in a tiny box especially the hot box where you're just yeah. li- literally you're being cooked alive essentially like oh i it's hard for me to 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 ugh, it just makes me uh, very sad. zobel is one of the people who has who's one of the dog handlers oh and she just wears like a beard and like a hat and you That's can't it, hilarious. Yeah. uh will smith was originally going to be Django, not ah. jamie fox but uh will smith had issue with the fact that it was uh What's what's the name of the dentist character? Uh, oh, uh, the character Chris, Christoph Waltz, Waltz plays. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, know, I remember his horse is Fritz. Yeah, yeah. I was. He was <laughs> he mad a horse, but... that uh, Christoph Waltz uh, was the one. Who, his character was the one who finally gets to kill Candy because he feels like that makes him the hero of the movie, not Django. Uh, Tarantino replies that no, the fact that uh, the fact that Christoph Waltz's character kills Django fucks over. J- or, I'm sorry, kills Candy fucks over Django and Broomhilda. And it's like kind of a commentary on how white allies will only get you so far before they make it about themselves. <laughs> um, before their ego gets in the way. Because yeah. uh, they had it all sewed up. Yeah, they had they were, it all they, sewed they up. They could have just walked out of there at that moment. And but they fucking the... Chekhov gun the magic Derringer <laughs> in the sleeve, so you have to use it. Um, Shake the hand. No. <laughs> There's a Derringer in that hand, and it's got to shoot Mr. Candy. Um, also, uh, Christoph Waltz, had a pelvis injury uh, before the time of filming, and he was afraid he was going to lose the role in the movie. And so they came up with the idea of the whole dentist cart so that uh, he could ride in the cart and not have to injure himself riding a horse. Oh, interesting. And that's where that weird thing came from. I loved it, man. It worked perfectly, especially for the KKK scene. Uh (laughs) Which, uh, yeah. This was also the uh, first movie that was edited by Fred Raskin, who was the uh, longtime assistant for his previous editor, Sally Menke, who had that uh, by that time had died in a tragic uh, accident. She is, we talked about this last episode, but she is a lot to thank for really reeling him in to make these like perfect, you know, films you know what if i mean I'm like, not, if she was around in like the 70s and stuff right i think so I, I think she was one of the few people that could actually still edit on film which is yes, how he which preferred was, to shoot yeah a big part she wasn't scorsese's lady though right? no i think no. she worked with spielberg oh. i think she edited jaws well, i might be wrong no, here's the thing no well here's the thing is hollywood is filled with stories of landmark directors who had like lady editors 
to fucking reel him in. Yeah. It's like uh, even even the first Star Wars movie, it was George Lucas's wife that helped like put that together. Like it's almost uncanny how like the grand vision at some point in the chain needs a lady to be like, fucking calm down. All right. Yeah. <laughs> no, we got to get yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only through the the yin of male creation and the yang of female nagging can true unity. <laughs> um okay, I was trying to find that. Uh no, Verna Fields did. Verna Fields did Jaws? Yes, okay. Verna Fields did Jaws. Interesting. Um so now we get to Hateful Eight. We already talked about it a little bit up top. Uh Essentially, uh, Tarantino was influenced by television, actually, for this one, uh, especially shows like Bonanza and The Virginian. He said twice per season, those shows would have an episode where a bunch of outlaws would take the lead characters hostage. They would come to the Ponderosa and hold everybody hostage or go to Judge Garth's place. Lee J. Cobb played him in The Virginian and take hostages. There would be a guest star like David Carradine or Darren McGavin, Claude Akins, Robert Culp, Charles Bronson, or James Coburn. I don't like that storyline in a modern context, but I love it in a Western where you would pass halfway through the show to find out if they were good or bad guys. And they all had a past that was revealed. I thought, what if I did a movie starring nothing but those characters? No heroes, (laughs) no Michael Landons, just a bunch of nefarious guys in a room all telling backstories that may or may not be true trap those guys together in a room with a blizzard outside give them guns and see what happens that's very cool which yeah he talks a lot about how what he does is he just puts characters in rooms and they they have the discussion he he just writes it down yeah um that's a big part of his process it makes a lot more sense when you hear him talk about his process where uh like uh, all the dad themes in reservoir dogs uh where it's you know uh harvey Keitel's character looks up to uh what's the name of the the big uh the big mob boss guy it's just like mr big yeah it's yeah, his yeah, name yeah. Joe? joe joe yeah, yeah. and uh joe cap joe cap and yeah. his boys nice guy eddie yeah 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 yeah, yeah. uh and then uh mr who's uh who's 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 the bleeding guy mr brown tim, tim ross mr. Mr. Orange. mr orange mr orange yeah. and mr orange is like treats harvey Keitel like a dad figure because yeah. they're going through this stuff i'm not a fucking cop yeah. yeah, amazing. I'm fucking dying here. <laughs> fucking dying over here. And you know, Tarantino will be like, and then I wrote that scene. And everyone's like, wow, it's amazing how you worked out all these father like uh, imagery, but in these characters. And he was like, oh, that's what I was doing. Neat. <laughs> <laughs> like he just like writes whatever he thinks is fun and interesting, and then after the fact goes like, oh yeah, okay, that's what it was. This was kind of a tough time for him leading up to uh, shooting the film. In late 2013, his original script was leaked online by Gawker. And at that point, he had only given an advance copy out to six people. He ended up suing Gawker for publishing it and announced he was no longer planning on making it. And then a half a year later, he uh, dropped the suit and the movie was back on. Also, uh, he also lost the suit. That was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Also, Jennifer Jason Lee, but Hulk Hogan, Hogan won it. And Gawker is no more. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is uh, who we already gushed about how incredible she is in this movie. She had to say about auditioning for Quentin Tarantino. Usually when you read for a director, they sit a bit away from you and you read with the casting director. But Quentin sits by your side and reads with you and also studies their career beforehand. Uh, She said he had seen everything I've done. He knew more about my career than I did. Uh, (laughs) So after your cast, you get to go to his house in the Hollywood Hills and work out the character. Uh, with him uh, poolside generally and you just kind of hang out and talk all day about this character that you, you've been cast as also we already talked about the quentin tarantino black lives matter rally the, the qu- exact quote was when i see murders i don't do not stand by i have to call a murderer a murderer and i have to call the murderers 
the murderers. Uh, and this led to a police boycott of Hateful Eight. And uh, they referred to Quentin Tarantino as a cop hater, which he refuted. And also, of course, this movie might have more N-words in it than Jackie Brown. Um, Tarantino said, I wasn't trying to bend over backwards in any way, shape, or form to make it socially relevant. But once I finished the script, that's when all the social relevancy started. Um, So I guess he says it was sort of uh, the timing of it was a bit nuts, I guess, or whatever. But they definitely, you know, I mean, there's Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers in a room. There's... They're going to say the N-word. Yeah, it's very racially charged, and that was a lot of the point. It's an American story set during a very racially charged time, like not like America hasn't just always been racially charged pretty much. But, yeah, I think it was an interesting commentary, and it was definitely interesting to be like, yeah, let's put a Confederate soldier and a Union man in in the same room, and what does that sound like, you know, which I think was fascinating. And now we get up to date with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the film about the state of Hollywood in the late 60s, as well as the Manson murders. Uh, it was uh, essentially the turning point in Hollywood in which these cowboy burly leading men types were being replaced by hippies in films like Easy Rider, and the whole culture was changing. Um, and then you also have Manson in the background, essentially ending the summer of love and um, the hippie swing in 60s with uh, the Manson murders. Um, I guess we... We're pr- pretty much getting to the end of the episode. Maybe we won't spoil this movie, and uh, we'll just if you have like, what do you? I mean, I, well, I enjoyed let's just it. Say it fits the same tradition as Inglorious Bastards yeah. and uh, Django Unchained. I, I still find it. I, I just have to say this out loud. It is very weird that like the great historical wrongs that like uh, Tarantino chose to address is like for Jews, it was the Holocaust, and for <laughs> African Americans, it was slavery, and for baby boomers it was the sharon tate murders <laughs> all great equal tragedies I know. So yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but like in a psychological way like it's a fact and honestly if you want to know more about all of that i i really i feel like last podcast on the left did an incredible job on their coverage of the maybe murders the best and, version and it. what effect it had yeah. on america as a whole when it came to the the you know the hippie movement and everything it's really fascinating stuff and I definitely think it's interesting subject matter I felt a little underwhelmed by the film but I also feel like it's the kind of movie that I'm gonna find to be one of his best like in a few years after a couple more watches clearly his best soundtrack oh my god the soundtrack your boy so Richardson good. kills it I mean every shot is beautiful they, they, they do an amazing job of show, of making you remember that certain things exist that are definitely coming back later in the movie. It's like every, the, I, it was, it was really like by the book, great film. I loved, I like a long movie too. Yeah. Personally. I mean, a lot of people get restless in the theater, but it doesn't bother me. I'm I cool feel like it. I'm getting more money, more movie for my money. <laughs> but I remember like, if we go back to hateful eight and your boy Richardson uh, real quick, uh, that opening shot, that like three minute yeah. shot of the, of the gravestone yeah, that goes to the, and it's, Perfectly shot, perfectly timed, and you lets you know it's like okay, sit down. This is gonna be a long ride. Yeah, we're gonna go through this. Wet, like, yeah, especially and, that. It's like you're watching a western. Like I don't know if you know what that is, but yeah. And then what's about time in Hollywood? I mean, that's a callback to Sergio um, Leone. Leone, yeah, who made all those movies and all. Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America. Those movies are like fucking four hours long. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what you expect's going to happen. Right. Well, it's a Tarantino (laughs) movie. You have to expect a long runtime. Honestly, though, that is not a complaint I had about Once Upon a Time in America. My first watch of Hateful Eight, it felt a a bit long to me. Uh, I really came to appreciate it on my second watch a lot more. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I saw in the theater, and I definitely didn't walk away being like, man, that felt long, actually. I think it really moved. Um, Yeah. 
And I mean, all of its comments on acting, that girl is incredible. Yeah, DiCaprio's incredible. DiCaprio's incredible. DiCaprio is great. so good in that. Um, man, yeah, there's a there's a lot of gr- great stuff about that movie. Brad Pitt Stern. is like, I don't admire, like Brad Pitt is like, this is what Brad Pitt wants Brad Pitt to be. Yeah. Like he's not really taking any risk. He's 100% like, that's right, I'm your cool friend with a hot bod and I'm like, always down. It's me. I'm 78 years old, but I'm still down. No, yeah, he's James Garner, kind of. So I've got a couple of final uh, great quotes and tidbits about his approach to writing and directing uh, before we finish out today. Uh, First of all, he starts out writing like it's a novel. That's why you always get those chapters and stuff Mm. in his movies. He starts like a novel, and then he formats it to script format. So that's why it's so literary. It feels so literary. Um, Tarantino said, my head is a sponge. I listen to what everyone says. I watch little idiosyncratic behavior. People tell me a joke and I remember it. People tell me an interesting story in their life and I remember it. When I go and write my new characters, my pen is like an antenna. It gets that information and all of a sudden these characters come out more or less fully formed. I don't write their dialogue. I get them talking to each other, as I mentioned before. Also, he says, I see the movie in my mind. Before I make the movie, I watch the movie. I've got a genuine vision. That's how I see it. Also, a lot of actors talk about how he... being on set with him, he's just this encyclopedia of film knowledge, and there's Everybody a lot of that. Everybody is, like, really impressed when he does the one-man IMDb trick. Yeah, he I just... Crazy. I would never want to play the actor game with him. It would be a nightmare. Oh, no, he's, he just has it all in his brain. It's all in there. Um, Christoph Waltz said about his directing approach, he's not an instructor. He doesn't tell you what to do. He asks your opinion about it. And then, the moment the mood has developed, he directs. Scoot McNary, uh, who plays business Bob Gilberth in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. I'm sorry, who's this actor you clearly just made up? Scoot McNary. Uh, Very funny, Holden, but tell me his real name. He plays business Bob Gilbert. I don't even remember that character, actually, to be honest with you, but um, I'll have to watch the movie again. He said, I wish all movies were made that way that Quentin makes them. He's a, he, There's a certain spirit on set where everybody there wants to be there and is excited to be there, and they love what they're doing, and they're excited about the project. That's just really contagious. Also, his process and the way he, that he does it, I've never been on a set like that in my life. It feels like you're making movies from the 1930s. It's the organic, raw way of making movies where everything is in camera. He doesn't even have a monitor. He just stares at you next to the camera. It's fascinating. Uh, of course, uh, shout-outs to his frequent collaborators, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Madsen, James Parks, Uma Thurman, Tim Roth, have been in multiple. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's been in the most with, I think, seven? Yeah, uh, he's been in everything but um, Hollywood and Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And he was supposed to get that part in Reservoir Dogs, oh, but they gave it to the other guy. Oh. And, uh, yeah, he also plans to make ten films total, which would make his next film his final one. He said, I'm not saying I'll just disappear like J.D. Salinger. I'll be a writer. I like the idea of making 10 motion pictures, and then boom, that's it. That's done. The filmography is locked. Uh, there's been talk of it being a Star Trek movie, which he would say if we he made a Star Trek movie, it would be like Pulp Fiction in space. Uh, also, the, uh, In space, no one can hear you say the N-word. <laughs> <laughs> which in Star Trek is Norlong. <laughs> These damn Norlongs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, or a horror movie, which would be inc- – I would love that. Or uh, And there's also been discussion of Kill Bill 3 being his final as well. Him and Uma Thurman have talked about that. He said, directors are not famous for knowing when to leave the party. I don't want to make old gen- geriatric colostomy bag movies. I want to make hard dick movies. And I want them all – I know, right? I want them all to come from the same place as Reservoir Dogs, from the same – 
artist from the same man. My point is this. If some kid in 30 years' time is going to watch one of my movies and he doesn't know who the hell I am, but he likes it so much, he says, I want to see something else by this dude. I want to make sure he likes the next one he grabs too. If you see Billy Wilder's classic Some Like It Hot, uh, and then the next Wilder movie you see is... uh, buddy buddy which is apparently is a very derided final film it's going to kick you in the shins i don't want those embarrassments to me it's all about a solid filmography also his life has been changing very drastically lately in personal ways he was uh recently it was announced that his wife is pregnant so i think coming into fatherhood as well uh you know moving on to um, uh, maybe a quieter lifestyle, yada, 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 would also lead him to uh, this retirement. What do you think? I mean, are you, I, it kind of, it bums me out for sure. I also get what he's saying. Yeah. Also, I heard a lot of rumors where he was just going to write the script for Star Trek and then do another movie. Cool. Uh, I, I also- don't think he's, I think he said that 10 movie thing when he was young and full of calm and was just like, man, better to burn out than to fade away. I think the man. earliest I heard him talk about it was in Glorious Bastards. Yeah. But- I could see him make an HBO show. That's dude. I would. I mean, honestly, I think Glorious Bastards was basically going to be going to be yeah. Dirty Band of Brothers. Yeah, it was yeah. going to be. He at first he was looking at it to be a series. I could all. I also, and I feel like Hateful Eight was fantastic in TV format. So maybe yeah. maybe that'll be the thing. But either way, um, you know, the man's going to do what the man's going to do. Uh, any final thoughts before we close this out? Because oh, I got his nothing. wife's uh, Israeli, and they're going to have Jewish kids together. Hey. hey. So Matzah. way to way to go! You know what? Mats- Forget everything I said. Mazel tov. Forget Ma- everything I said. <laughs> Mazel tov. Speaking of crackers, I need to learn more about your col- your culture. <laughs> no, nah, you're fine. You're fine. We don't want it. Uh, Keep them away. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Ed, for joining us. This Please, so much fun. Check thanks. out the Brighter Side podcast. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. I've been on it a couple times. It's um, the best. You've been on it a bunch. Yeah, man. you've been on it at least fifteen times. Yeah, it's been it's an absolute, uh, absolutely uh, an enjoyable Hunt down illegal streams of uh, roundtable of gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Find those archives and check out uh, Thick Skin with Jeff Ross. Yeah, I'm the co-host of that as well. Hell yeah, yeah, yeah. Thick Skin with Jeff Ross as well. Thank you again. Uh, I think this was great. I'm so glad this worked out. And uh, also, if you want to check us out further, bonus uh, content every single week for just $5 on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You can follow me at twitch.tv forward slash Jake. Follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. And hey, uh, you know, use the magic computer in your hand right now to leave a review on iTunes. It hey. helps us out a lot. Uh, you know, five stars. And uh, just say which one of us you think has the best chest hair. Hell yeah. Oh, um, God. All right. It's probably you, Jay. Matzah. Also, uh, <laughs> always remember, keep on whizzing. Never stop bruising. Oh. Always fart. <laughs> <laughs> He's in. <laughs> this show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.